The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Bibles open this morning. Um, it was no mistake that Mark 15, 1 through 47 was up there on the screen. We are going to uh, take upon us the monumental task of working our way through the entirety of Mark 15 this morning. Um, we're going to make uh, some light observations on verses 1 through 20, but then the bulk of our time is going to be zooming in on the latter half of Mark 15. If you go back into Mark chapter 8, verse 31, what you will find is this, really what I would call the keystone to Mark's gospel. It's the confession on the lips of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus says, that's right, in opposition to what you think the Messiah, the Christ, the King came to do, let me tell you what the Messiah, God's Messiah, God's Christ, has come to do. He's come to suffer, he's come to die, and he's come to rise again. And Mark 15 really takes the first two of those three. Mark 8.31, in many ways, is the table of contents for Mark chapter 15 and 16. The front half of Mark 15 is the king who came to suffer, just as he said he would in Mark chapter 8, and he is the king who came to die, just as he said he would back in Mark chapter 8. And so I'm just really feeling the, the weight of this text this morning as we are going to turn our attention to the crucifixion and the cry of abandonment that Christ went through on the cross as He endured the condemnation and He bore the guilt for our sin. And so what we need this morning is the help of the Holy Spirit to see Jesus as big because He is a King that is big and we want to see Him high, lofty, and lifted up. So let's go to bat for one another. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would come and that He would sharpen our minds, sharpen our hearts to see the Christ who is worthy in this text, okay? So let's pray and then we'll turn our attention to these verses. Father, what we have before us is the epicenter the core, the essence of the cross. And if there's just anything that is manifestly true this morning is that I don't have the power, I do not have the ability to make us see Jesus this morning. The gospel that we're going to preach and the gospel we're going to listen to over the next several minutes. Father, may this be a time where this gospel is not in word only. But Father, I'm asking that the preaching of the word of God would be empowered by the Spirit of God. So that it would be a demonstration of power that comes from Him who delights to magnify Jesus. Father, would you usher in a heavenly hush this morning? 
as we seek to turn our hearts and our minds to Christ crucified for sin. Help us this morning to grasp the bigness and the weightiness of what took place on that cross as Jesus paid our ransom. Holy Spirit, fill me now. Holy Spirit, clothe us in power. Cause our hearts to burn within us as you open our minds to grasp the Scriptures before us this morning. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. For the grace of God has appeared in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. By His wounds you have been healed. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring us to God, and it's all because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, what we have before us this morning in Mark chapter 15 is the culmination of Jesus' journey to the cross. And the overarching theme of these last hours of Jesus on the cross come to us bearing this theme, the theme of God's gracious love, His grace, His mercy that He has for sinners. Because God so loved the world, He sent His Son to suffer and to die for our good. You see, this is the main idea of Mark chapter 15. Jesus is the king who suffered. Jesus is the king who was killed. And it's all so that you and I might be saved. And really, that's just how the whole of Mark 15 breaks down. Again, like I said, when you go back into Mark chapter 8, that verse 31 serves as a table of contents for us. We're in the waning hours of Christ's earthly life before his resurrection. He is going to be the king who suffers. He's going to be the king who dies. And we're going to see next week he is the king who will rise again. And so when we turn our attention to verse 1, Mark calls us to see this simple truth. Jesus is the king who suffered. Now, as I said earlier in our intro, we're not going to spend a lot of time in verses 1 through 20 this morning. The bulk of our time is going to be in the back half of Mark 15. But what we can do is make some observations, at least in verses 1 through 20, by striking a line through these verses by noticing the questions that are asked in these verses, specifically the questions that are asked by the man Pilate. You notice this, that early in the morning, 
Mark tells us that the religious leaders have bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And notice that this begins a string of questions asked by Pilate. You come down to verse 2, we see that Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You stitch together some of the other accounts in the Gospels, and what you find out is this. The religious rulers realize they can't get Jesus to be killed by the Romans if they simply bring the charge of blasphemy before them, which is what we saw last week. They realize they need to get Jesus to be guilty, to look guilty in the eyes of Roman law. And one of the ways they're going to do that, the way they're going to do that, is to say that Jesus is treasonous. You go into Luke's gospel, I believe it is, Luke 23, you have the account of the religious rulers explaining to Pilate, he claims to be the Christ, he claims to be the Messiah, i.e., he claims to be a king. And if he's the king, and you're claiming that Caesar is the king, Jesus is committing treason against Caesar, and he deserves to die. And so when they roll Jesus and accuse him of many things before Pilate, Mark condenses it down and just on the lips of Pilate is this question, are you the king of the Jews? The priests are heaping accusations upon him. You come to verse 4, the second question of Pilate is this, have you no answer to make? They're throwing accusation upon accusation at him. But Jesus stands there and says nothing. He is that lamb. Like it's before the shears are silent. He is that suffering servant. You come down to verse 9, and what you find is Pilate asking another question. This time it's to the crowd. The crowd recognizes that Pilate has a bit of a tradition during this time of releasing prisoners. But this time, what they want is Jesus to die, and so they're asked for Barabbas, and Pilate asks, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 10, he's perceiving that it's out of envy that the chief priests want him delivered up. He's seeing through their ruse. Okay, I'll do what my tradition normally is. How about I just release for you the king of the Jews? They don't want that. Verse 11, so the chief priests stir up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. They whip the crowd into a fury. Crucify him, the crowd is shouting. Crucify him. Pilate's asking why, what evil has he done? They don't care. Crucify him. They're screaming at the top of their lungs for the fourth and final question to come on Pilate's lips. Verse 12, Pilate again looks at the crowd as they're being whipped up into a frenzy, screaming for Jesus to die Pilate asks what really becomes the question of questions. What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? You see, the thing is that this is just not a question that's pertinent for Pilate at that time. Pilate's asking, what do you expect from me? What do you want me to do with this man? How do you want me to react to him? What do you want me to do with this one you call the king of the Jews? And see, this is the question that we must all wrestle with. 
We've seen his power in Mark's gospel. We've heard his teaching in Mark's gospel. We've witnessed his miracles. We know his identity. Jesus has affirmed, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. Therefore, we need to take Pilate's question, own it in our heart, articulate it in our mind. What am I going to do with the one who is called the King of the Jews? This is one of those questions that you just can't not answer. Because to not answer is to answer in the negative when it comes to considering and responding to him who is known as the King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Are you going to forsake him? Are you going to deny him? Or will you embrace Jesus for who he is and what he came to do? The King who came to give his life as a ransom for many. What are you going to do with this suffering king? That is what Mark is pressing on us here at the very end of his gospel. He's like, there's no other evidence to roll out before you. There's none. You've seen it. He's the Christ. He came to give his life as a ransom. What are you going to do with the facts before you? You see, there's just no two other ways about it. Jesus is the king who has suffered in the extreme. He's suffered the trumped-up charges of the religious rulers in verse 3. He's suffered the murderous envy of the chief priests, verse 10. He suffered the fury of the crowd screaming for his death, verses 11 through 14. He suffered the weakness of Pilate, who Mark tells us, wishing to satisfy the crowd. He's a man-pleaser. The implication from the other Gospels is this. He knows Jesus is innocent. The trumped-up charges that he's committing treason against Caesar, the implication is Pilate knows that's not what's going on, but he bends to the people because he's a coward. He's a man-pleaser. He suffers the punitive power of Rome, scourged. He's suffered the mockery and the abuse of the soldiers, spitting, mockery, crown of thorns, striking his head, stripping him naked. And in it all, Jesus is just simply fulfilling what he said would happen. Again, back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 that he would suffer many things. He said he would be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Accomplished. He would be delivered into the hands of men, into the hands of Gentiles. Accomplished. He said he would be condemned to death, done, mocked, done, spit upon, done, flogged, done. And ultimately, he said he would be killed, which is exactly how Mark ends verse 20 when he tells us that the Roman soldiers led Jesus away to crucify him. So when we look at verses 1 through 20, we see that Jesus is the king, the king who suffered But not only is he the suffering king, we also see that Jesus is the king who was killed. Verses 21 through 47. So open up your Bible. Make sure you're tracking along here. We're in verse 21 now. And what you need to see is that as Mark begins to write, 
he's going to start laying out Jesus' journey to the cross. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And he brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered to Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. It's amazing how brief every gospel touches on the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Here, it's just those three words. They crucified him. At this stage in the game right now, Jesus is pinned to the Roman torture device known as a cross. Literally pinned, nailed. And below him, Mark tells us, there are Roman soldiers dividing his garments, casting lots for his clothes to decide what he should take. Now, that crucifixion has been determined as the method of Jesus' death. He is led outside the city to a place called Golgotha, a place of a skull. Jesus has offered wine mixed with myrrh. It was a primitive anesthetic. You can think of it along those lines. It was a kind of painkiller that would have been administered to those who were condemned to die by crucifixion in order to relieve the excruciating suffering of crucifixion. Excruciating is the word that we get from the root word crucifixion. There was actually a word developed to describe the kind of pain that people experienced as they were sentenced to die on a cross. But Mark says he doesn't take it. He was going to face the agony of the cross with full control of his mental faculties. And then stripping Jesus of his clothes, the Roman soldiers, they crucified him. And then they began to gamble to see who was going to take basically his last earthly possessions, his clothes. Mark tells us that it was the third hour when they crucified him. In Mark's gospel, it's been immediately this, immediately this, immediately this. And then when we come to the cross, it's like he comes to a screeching halt. He pulls out a clock and says, well, baby, we're going to march right through this thing so you can understand with exacting detail what our Savior was experiencing on the cross. And so he tells us that at this point in time, it's the third hour. That is, it's nine o'clock in the morning. And the inscription of the charge against him reads, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. As Isaiah 53, 12 had promised, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. But notice how Mark highlights the irony of mockery. The irony of mockery that is on the lips of the people who are going to come trolling past the cross heaping scorn, scoffing at him who is the king. The irony of mockery, Mark tells us, begins with those who passed by, verse 21, deriding him, wagging their heads, and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, Save yourself and come down from the cross. Can you just hear their words are just dripping with scorn? 
There's nothing serious about what they're saying here in this moment. They taunt Jesus for his claim that we said he had made back in John chapter 2, verse 19, his claim that he is the one who would demolish the temple and rebuild it in three days. The apostle John tells us he's talking about himself as the temple. These people are misunderstanding it, and so in their mind, that's the kind of trumped-up charge they tried to convict Jesus of that wasn't able to stick, but it's like, even though we couldn't get that last claim to stick on Jesus, man, we're just going to cling to it. So here's Jesus pinned on the cross, and they come before Jesus as the crowd just begins to ridicule him. Listen, if you have the power to be able to destroy this building, then surely you've got the power to remove yourself from sort of two sticks just stuck together, right? Surely if you can do the former, then, sh- then you can absolutely do the latter. But the mockery doesn't stop there. Seeing their opportunity to get in one last dig, the religious leaders come along now. And notice what they begin to say down there in verse 31. Well, he saved others. Can he not save himself? It's just smugness. Have you ever been around a religious person that is just overly smug in the religiosity? It's almost nauseous. It makes you almost want to puke at how smug they are in and of themselves because of their perception of being better than others. And that is exactly what's going on here right now in this moment. They're staring at Jesus with eyes of scorn. And if you could see their face, if looks could kill, they would have murdered Christ with their looks. Listen, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Then they move to his kingship. Let the Christ, this king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then Mark tells us over in verse 32, even the two guys crucified with him decide to join in the reviling of the Christ. The whole scene is just one of mockery. The two robbers, along with those who passed by, And the religious rulers are just pouring out contempt on Jesus. They despise him as a prophet, back in verse 29. Prophetically, destroy temple, I'm going to be the one who raises it up. They're like, you as a prophet? No, we're mocking it. They mock him as a priest. A priest, what's he do? He stands as sort of that mediator between men and God and says, if you want to be saved, if you want to be saved, look to the one who can save. And here they are saying he went around as a priest telling people how to be saved, but the guy can't even save himself. And so they deride him for his priestliness. And then they just flat out humiliate him as a king. Well, here he is, the king of the Jews. Why doesn't he just come down right now and then then if he does that and we see it, then maybe, maybe we'll actually believe it. But the thing is, in their mockery of his prophethood, in the mockery of his priesthood, in the mockery of his kingship, Come down from the cross. Come down from the cross. It's the echoes of Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation. The crowd, the robbers, and the religious rulers have the whole whole scene backward, don't they? 
These men claim they would have believed if Jesus had come down from the cross, but the truth is we believe precisely because Jesus stayed on the cross. You see, the irony of their mockery is that Jesus not saving himself is the point of the cross. Jesus did not save himself so that he could save others. Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus gave his life so that we might gain eternal life. This is the point of the cross. But for all their mocking, the people completely miss the point. And then Mark moves us immediately from the irony of mockery to the very essence, the very core of the cross. Something known as the cry of dereliction. Now, the word dereliction is just admittedly an old word. Like, if you've been using the word derelict or dereliction this past week, please come talk to me because you are better than I am. Because, I mean, that's just a phenomenal word, one. Two, the fact that you're using it still is great. But what is going on here is something called the cry of dereliction. Now, what do we mean when we say something is derelict? What we're saying is that it is abandoned. It's abandoned. That derelict house, that derelict school building. It's a building that's abandoned. It's that shed, that garage, it's abandoned. It's no longer used. So the cry of dereliction from Jesus on the cross is his cry of being abandoned. At this point in his crucifixion, Mark tells us that Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. But when the sixth hour had come, so it's noon, Jesus has been hanging on the cross, receiving the mockery of all around him, 9 a.m. to noon. Now that noon had come, he tells us that there is something that takes place. There is darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi. Eloi, Lemma, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when you zoom in on these two verses, verses 33 and 34, it is straight up a picture of God forsaken darkness. God forsaken darkness. If you remember a few weeks ago, as Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he clearly established that he is the Passover lamb who will take away the sins of the world. When we looked and studied the Lord's Supper, do you remember that? He says, I'm the Passover bread. My body is going to be broken. I'm the Passover lamb. My blood will be poured out. That's how the new covenant is going to be established. And in making reference to these elements of the Passover, the Passover lamb from Exodus chapter 12, Jesus, we said back in Mark 14, that Jesus was linking his death to the sacrificial death of the lamb that had to be killed in order for anyone to be protected from the angel of death that was going to visit the land of Egypt. Remember, again, Moses, the ten plagues, this is where knowing your Old Testament really pays off. 
That tenth plague was the sending of the angel of death, the death of the firstborn. So anyone who did not take God at his word, who did not kill that lamb, shed the blood of the lamb, paint that blood on the doorpost, and in faith look to the blood of that lamb, saying, I am trusting in the blood of the lamb. That is how judgment from God is going to pass over me. For anyone who did not do that, judgment would come, and the firstborn in the household, whether Egyptian or Jew, the firstborn would die. So out of the ten plagues that happened while in Egypt, the angel of death was that tenth plague. But if you remember, the ninth plague in Egypt was a three-day period of darkness, followed by that final plague, the death of the firstborn. So just as there was a plague of darkness preceding the death of the lamb in Egypt, Mark is showing us that there was also a plague of darkness preceding the death of Jesus, the Passover lamb, only this time it was God's own firstborn son who was going to die. This is why Jesus cries out with that terrible cry of abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His cry was not just merely a cry of physical pain. Psychological confusion. Fear of death. He cries out because over that three-hour period of God-forsaken darkness, Jesus was experiencing all that was involved in Him being the sin-bearer, Him being the cup-drinker in the presence of our sinless God. He was drinking to the dregs the cup of the wine of God's wrath against sin. He was truly experiencing what it meant to be forsaken, to be abandoned, to be cut off from the Father's favorable presence. Now, this is the paradox of Scripture because this is not implying that somehow the Trinity was broken that the fellowship was broken, but on the cross, what we have is a genuine and true God-forsakenness. His cry was a cry of God-forsakenness, abandonment, because at the cross, Jesus was enduring our condemnation. Jesus was bearing our guilt for sin. He was paying the necessary ransom price so that we might be saved from our sin. As Jesus hung on the cross, God was making him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus' cry and the darkness that covered the land declared the one and the same truth. There was real abandonment from the Father as Jesus took on every sin of every man, every woman, every child. To put it into the words of hip-hop artist Shy Lin, who wrote a song called The Cross, He says, when we seek to grasp all that was taking place at the cross, we must recognize that we're now in the realm of the sublime and profound. 
with God at the helm, it's about to go down. The Father's wrath precise will blast and slice the priceless Master Christ as a sacrifice. Willingly, He's under the curse to be treated as if the Son was the worst scum of the earth. The scene is the craziest. Jesus being treated as if He is the shadiest atheist. How is it the Messiah is in the fiery pit as if he was a wicked liar with twisted desires? The one who's sinless and just, punished as if he was promiscuous and mischievous with vicious lust. The source of all godly pleasure, tormented as if he was a foul investor or child molester. How could he be bruised like he was a goody two-shoes who doesn't think that she needs the good news? He's perfect in love and wisdom, but he's suffering as if he constructed the corrupt justice system. We should mourn at the backdrop. Jesus being torn like he's on the corner with crack rock with porn on his laptop. What is this kid? His gifts are infinite, but he's hit with licks for religious hypocrites. He's the light, but being treated like he's the seedy type who likes to beat his wife. He's treated like a rapist, treated like a slanderer, treated like a racist, or maybe a philanderer. Jesus being penalized like he had sin inside, filled with inner pride while committing genocide. I could write for a billion years and still can't name all the sins placed on the Lamb slain. But know this, the main thing the cross demonstrated, the glory and the holiness of God vindicated. You see, it's where we see your holiness, God, is at the cross. We see that you're controlling this at the cross. We see how you feel about sin at the cross, your unfathomable love for men at the cross. It's where we see your sovereignty at the cross. We see our idolatry at the cross. We know that there's a judgment day from the cross. May we never take our eyes away from the cross. Noon to three. The God-man pinned on a tree. And over those course of three hours, Jesus enters into the darkness of God-forsakenness. Listen. So that He might bear the consequences of our sin and we might receive full and forever pardon from Him. That's the gospel of the cross, friends. That's the gospel of the cross. At the cross, Jesus suffered the injustice and insult I should have suffered. At the cross, Jesus experienced the shame and pain I should have experienced. At the cross, Jesus bore the guilt and curse I should have borne. At the cross, The shepherd was struck that the sheep might be saved. At the cross, the great king suffered and died that his people might live. God so loved. The Bible takes all of I've just said, sums it up with one word, 
love. Loved. God so loved. How did he demonstrate his love for us? Answer, cross. The cross. He gave his only son. How did he give his son? As a sacrifice for sinners? Why did God so love in such a way that he gave his only son? So that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friend, you're here this morning either believing in that Christ or you're here this morning not believing in that Christ. You're here looking to the Christ who bore the guilt and curse or you're going to stand before God one day and bear that guilt and curse for yourself. You're either looking by faith to the shepherd who was struck so that you might be saved or one day you're going to stand there and receive the full-blown striking of the Father for your sin. God so loved He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Are you right now believing in him for your salvation? You've got to wrestle with that question now. You've got to wrestle with that question now. You have got to wrestle with that question now. Am I believing in this king who died on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And notice that some of the bystanders hearing it say, behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. But even in his own death, notice Jesus is the sovereign king. I love the king who's sovereign. I'm so glad he's sovereign. He's on the cross, but he ain't out of control. He's told us back in John chapter 10, verse 18, he has the authority to lay down his life, and he's the one with the authority to take it back up. And that's why he is the one who utters the loud cry and breathes his last. The wrath of God, it's been absorbed. It's 3 p.m. The three hours of him absorbing as the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing substitute, he took the white-hot fury of God's wrath for sin, past, present, future, over the course of that three hours. Three hours come, he utters a loud cry, he breathes his last. Most commentators say this is a loud cry from John to test a lie. It is finished. It's done. Atonement's been made. The work of salvation is done. And as tangible evidence, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. There's probably a sermon in there about God doing something there. Notice that next sentence there, verse... Or notice that word there in verse 38. The curtain of the temple is torn in two. We just got to keep going. But in Mark's gospel, that word tear, it shows up twice. It's the word schizo. It means to split, to tear. That's where we get schizophrenic. People have split personalities. 
You go to Mark chapter 1, it's God the Father tearing the heavens open, looking down on his Son as the Spirit descends and saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now that you have the Son in whom he's well pleased, rendering the necessary sacrifice to ransom sinners, the curtain is being torn into, telling us that now presence and access to the Father has been accomplished by the terror. T-E-A-R-E-R. The one who tears. Heaven's tear. Again, I'm telling you, there's a sermon wrapped up in there. Before the cross, we were separated from God's presence, but now the one who is called the beloved son, what he accomplished on the cross, we're now given access through him to the presence of God. There stands the centurion. Notice verse 39. He watches the whole thing play out right before him, and what's, what's the mess he can muster up? Truly, this is the son of God. Do you know who's confessed Jesus to be the Son of God in Mark's gospel before the centurion? No humans. Two separate accounts of demons. The last time you hear the confession that he's the Son of God is Mark's one-sentence intro in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the good news of the man Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Shows up on the lips of a human here in the centurion. What brings him to the place where he sees this? According to Mark, it was the fact that he saw Jesus die in the way he did. He saw that end this way he breathed this last. And he sees this man was the son of God. And then verses 40 and 41, if you just notice that for all the bravado and all the strong confessions of loyalty... From the disciples back in Mark chapter 14, guess who it is who sticks true to the end? The women. That's a lofty view of women. I love the way the Bible elevates the dignity and the value and the worth of women. And you see that there in verses 40, 41. Well, when you roll into those last verses, 42 to 47, it's just going to be summed up with this little header right here. The king is dead. King is dead. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. I'm just reading this here. Follow along with me in your scriptures there. There's a man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. If you remember back in Mark 14, 15, it's this same council who sought to condemn Jesus. We don't know if Joseph was there or if he wasn't there. But what we do know about Joseph is that he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Why? Because it usually takes people a fistful of days to die by crucifixion. Pilate's utterly amazed that he died within a couple of hours. From nine to three. It took him six hours. Most people linger on the cross for two to three days. So Pilate summons the centurion. Man, is this thing true? Has he already died? And he learned from the centurion that he was dead. He's like, Joseph, you can have the corpse. Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Joseph rolls a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And notice here again that same crew of women in verses 40 and 41 show back up in verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, they're standing there as the witnesses to where he was laid. The Lord of life has died. The women witnessed it. Joseph of Arimathea knew it. 
Pilate is surprised by it. The centurion confirms it. It truly is the blackest of Fridays, but the good news of the cross is that Sunday's a coming. In the words of the famous preacher S.M. Lockridge, it's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep. Judas is betraying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary is crying. Peter is denying, but they don't know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns, but they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning and evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hand to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they do not know it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross. Feeling forsaken by his father. Left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? It's Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sunday is coming. You see, it's the proclamation of old that we've all seen in movies. King dies. Someone stands up and shouts, the king is dead. To which someone responds, long live the king. Because in the movies, the guy we thought was going to get it done is dead. We need to look on down the road to someone else. But when we come to the end of verse 47, this is the shout we fully expect to hear. The king is dead. But is he really? Because after all, Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Father, turn our eyes to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see the great and glorious King. Oh yes, at this stage in the game, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is in the tomb. He is fully dead. That is why they buried Him. But three days, in three days, Sunday's coming. 
and our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Prophet, our Priest, will blast loose the shackles of death and He will rise again. God, turn our eyes to Jesus. May we look full into His wonderful face as we wrestle and grapple with the King who is alive and how we are meant to react to Him by faith, believing in Him as the only hope of salvation. Father, send Your Spirit. Convict us with Your Word so that we may see Jesus. Repent of sin. Turn to Him in faith. Believe and live. It's in your name I pray, King Jesus. Amen.